Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the uh, text scriptures that we're using for this Wednesday night study, How to Be Led by the Holy Ghost. We're using Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, and then Romans chapter 8, two verses of scripture in Romans 8, verses 14 and 16. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Modern translation says, The spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord. I like that. It brings out the meaning that the writer of Proverbs is trying to get across to us. Now we found in our in our study that the Bible tells us in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty three, that man is a three part being. Paul said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that man is a spirit. He's created in the image of God, the image and likeness of God. And God is a spirit, according to John 4.24. So man is created in his image as a spirit being. He has a soul. He possesses a soul, which is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. You remember in uh, Luke's gospel, Luke 16, Jesus told us the story of a certain rich man. It's not a parable. If it was a parable, he couldn't have said there was a certain rich man and a certain beggar named Lazarus. But he tells us about how both men died. One went to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was in hell. His mental faculties were, were intact. His emotions were intact. His ability to remember was intact. His will was intact. His soul, is, so we see therefore that his soul, our soul, man's soul, is eternal but it's not affected by the new birth. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Wouldn't it be nice if those old things that became new, old things that passed away and became new, included our minds? Wouldn't it be nice if we, when we got born again, we got a renewed mind? But clearly we don't at the new birth because Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 12, to be, not trend, uh, to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He's telling spirit-filled, born-again, spirit-filled believers that their minds haven't been renewed. So we see a great truth from the Scripture, and that is that man's mind is totally unaffected by the new birth until we do something with it. So if man's a three-part being, he is a uh, spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body... That gives God three avenues with which to work from if he was going to contact us. And the Bible tells us he only uses one of them. The spirit of man, not the soul of man, not the mind of man, not the intellect of man, not the emotional part of man. But the spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. He doesn't use the body to to contact you. He doesn't use the body to lead you. He doesn't use your feelings to direct you in any way whatsoever. He uses a spirit. Now in Romans chapter 8, our other golden text scriptures for this series, Romans chapter 8 verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That tells us that every child of God has a right, and I believe a responsibility to be led by the Holy Ghost. Well, that's talking about the same thing that Proverbs twenty twenty seven is, isn't it? The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. For as many as are led by the spirit, they are the sons of God. How's he going to lead us? Verse 16 of Romans 8. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. Not our minds, not our intellect, not our feelings or our body. 
bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God or the children of God. There's nothing more important in life that you can know than, than that you are a child of God. Everything that you've received from God comes as a result of knowing that you're a child of God. Everything that you find out that you are in Christ comes as a result of your knowledge that you are a child of God. So he's going to lead us in the most important way, the most important aspect of our lives, by the Holy Ghost, by bearing witness with our spirits. Now, since we know that God leads us by our spirit, by the inward witness, not by our intellect or our emotions, not by our feelings, the feelings of our body, why is it that the majority of the church world is looking for every other way in the world to find direction or to be led of God other than the spirit? other than the inward witness of the Spirit. It's a fascinating thing to me to understand that God takes no responsibility whatsoever. No responsibility whatsoever to make sure that you know the inward witness. That's completely on you. He takes every responsibility upon himself to make a way for you to come into his family and to provide the word for you to grow and learn and develop So that you can know the leading of God by the inward witness. But that's all on you and me, not him. I think we could all say, if we took time to have a discussion, I'm sure that we could all say that if we had learned to know and to follow that inward witness, there's probably a thousand and one things in life we wouldn't have done or that we would have done differently. We wouldn't have made some of the business decisions we made if we followed that inward witness. We wouldn't have joined ourselves together with certain people if we'd followed that inward witness. And in many cases, it's because we didn't know to follow it. Again, the responsibility is on us. Now, the inward witness, as we've established, and we've shown a lot of scriptures and given examples in line with the word to establish that the inward witness is the main, the number one way that God is going to lead each and every one of us. We've also found some examples of the voice of your own spirit, of what some people call that still small voice, which is your conscience. That's another guide, another safe guide if you're saved, and especially if you're feeding on the word. The more you feed on the word, the more your conscience becomes a safe guide. But then outside of that, outside of the inward witness and the inward voice, everything else would fall into the category of spectacular leadings. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. There are times when the Holy Ghost will speak to your spirit. Now, when he speaks to you, it's a much more forceful voice than just the voice of your own spirit. It's almost as if somebody outside of you is talking to you. And there are certain situations where you might even think that it could be an audible voice, or at least it seems to you as if it might be an audible voice. That's the, the, when the Spirit of God speaks to you. We've talked a little bit about that as well. But there are other times where, where God, in his sovereignty, operated in spectacular manners or spectacular ways to lead his people. So I want to talk to you tonight about prophecies, visions, and angels. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. There are ten times in the book of Acts where we see spectacular guidance or spectacular events occurring throughout the early days of the church. Now, uh, Acts chapter Acts chapter five is really what I want you to see. 
But we've got to kind of set the, set the stage for the, the uh, events that uh, are going to be described. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the gate, uh, going to the, uh, the temple at the hour of prayer. They had a set time that they would pray, apparently. And they went through the beautiful gate, and they found the crippled man. The crippled man wanted uh, them to give him some money. And Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Well, Peter reaches down, grabs hold of the man, lifts him up. Immediately his ankle bones received strength, and he leaping walked and stood and praised God in the middle of the temple. Everybody comes running together. Peter preaches to him about Jesus. 3,000 people get saved. No, that's not right. 5,000 people got saved. Well, the Jewish council, the Jewish leaders came together, running together, wanting to know what was going on, brought them before the council. And in, this is in chapter 4. They come to the place where they're trying to decide, what do we do to them? I'm gonna, well, let me just start reading in verse 16, Acts chapter 4, verse 16. Here's what the council said. What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them. It's manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now notice verse 19. I'm setting the stage for something else we want to show you. Acts chapter chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now look with me over to chapter 5. The interim scriptures, the ones that we're going to skip over, where they go back to their own company, they pray for God to give them boldness to speak the word. They already know what they're supposed to do. They've already been doing it. The Holy Ghost comes back upon them in a mighty way. Signs and wonders are done. The story of... uh, Ananias and Sapphira is in the first part of chapter 5. And then after that, it talks about the many other signs and wonders that are done. Insomuch that in verse 16, it says that people start coming from all the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks with them, and everybody got healed. Verse 17, we'll pick up the story. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said. Notice he says something. He doesn't just do something for him. He says something. He says, go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. When they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. That's when the council goes and looks for them in jail and finds out that they're in the temple and said, Calls them back in under the, calls them on the carpet, so to speak. This time they threaten them and beat them, command them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Now I want you to see that the angel delivered them from prison and gave them instruction. But I want you to notice something. As I said, I don't know if we've got time to go through all 10 events in the book of Acts, but I want you to notice something. So many times, so many people, are looking for God to give them spectacular guidance. They want to see an angel. They want to see a vision. Or they want somebody to prophesy to them what God has planned for their life. Or what he wants them to do. But even in these spectacular occurrences, notice how few of them ever provide direction. 
The angel doesn't tell them to do anything more than they already know to do. They've already declared before the council. You judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey God or obey man. After they're called back under the carpet before the council again, notice how they answer. It's in verse uh, 28. The council said, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. So the angel doesn't provide them any information that they already had that they didn't have before, did he? He just turns them loose and says, get back to it. They already know that they're supposed to obey God. They know that obeying God means to preach and tell about Jesus. They're certainly aware that the Holy Ghost will work with them, accompanying them with signs, accompanying the word with signs following. So here's an angel that speaks to them and doesn't give them direction or doesn't give them anything other than direction that's already confirmed by their own hearts and what they know on the inside. Can you see that? It's going to be a recurring theme. Turn with me now to chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 tells us about Philip going down to Samaria and preaching Christ. And the whole city turns out. Peter and John come down and get them filled with the Holy Ghost. Let's pick up the story in verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip. This is not the inward witness. Not even the voice of his own spirit. It's the angel of the Lord that appears to him and tells him something. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia and a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who had the charge of all of her treasurer and had come to Jerusalem for the worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, and notice the spectacular occurrences that are taking place. Philip is led by the Holy Ghost, apparently. He goes down to Samaria and preaches Christ. It doesn't say the Holy Ghost told him to go there. It doesn't say anything other than he went. Well, he must have had something in his heart to go. And the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us anything more than that, we can't uh, assign anything more than just the inward witness, an inward desire to go down there and do the work of God. So he does with great success. Now later on, his work's finished in Samaria, and the angel of the Lord tells him to go down to Gaza. He puts him in position to see someone. He puts him in position to make a connection. But in order to make the connection, it takes further revelation, further instruction. The Holy Ghost has to say to him, go join yourself to the chariot. He does, preaches to the man, gets him saved. They they come by a pool of water and he stops on the side of the road and baptizes him in water. And then Philip is caught away, translated away from that place, he disappears. So notice what the Holy Ghost is doing here. Notice what the angel does and the Holy Ghost does. He adds to what Philip had on his heart to do for the Lord in Samaria by giving him a new place to go. He doesn't give him a new thing to do. He gives him a new place to go. Look at chapter 9. 
This is the story of Saul on the road to Damascus. He's on the way to Damascus with letters in his hand from the Jews, the leader of the uh, synagogues in Jerusalem, that if he found any Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, notice this, and when his eyes were opened, so his eyes had been closed. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, in Acts chapter 26, when he stands before Felix, uh, I'm sorry, he's before King Agrippa. He tells King Agrippa the same conversion story. And he says, wherefore, O king, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul calls this a vision. But it was a vision with his eyes closed. Now, if his eyes were closed, what does that mean? That means it was a spiritual vision. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus did not tell him about how to get saved. How come? Because he didn't have to. Paul knew what the Christians preached about salvation. He knew that they preached Jesus crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the dead. So when Jesus identifies himself as the one that's responsible for this spectacular occurrence, Saul just very simply says to himself, Jesus is alive. He must be the Messiah. So as soon as Jesus identifies himself, Paul instantly makes a decision. Since he is alive, he's got to be the Messiah. He's obviously Lord. He's obviously operating by the power of God. He gives his heart to the Lord instantly. Now, a little bit later, three days later, as a matter of fact, he was three days without food and drink, without being able to see, I notice in verse 10, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Notice he's not a minister. He's just a layman, just an ordinary Christian. A certain disciple named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision. Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus for behold he prays. And is seen in a vision. So we know that Paul's had a vision of Ananias. And is seen in a vision. A man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him. That he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered. Lord I have heard by many of this man. How much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest. To bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him. Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me. To bear my name before Gentiles. And kings and the children of Israel. For I must show him how great things he must suffer. For my name's sake. So here's the Lord telling Ananias in a vision. What direction he has for him. Or what work he has for him. But let me ask you a question. Just a few things that we've seen so far. How many things have been given. How many individuals. Or how many of these events. 
would qualify as someone being given direction for their personal life as opposed, for the, as opposed to the work of God. How many of these people were seeking a vision or an angel? Does anybody know of any scripture anywhere that gives us a right to seek provisions or seek after angels or prophecies for that matter? There are things that will occur from time to time as the Lord wills. And you can see, especially with the beginning of the church, how important it would have been and was for God to move people around and get people in the right places to make these kinds of connections, divine connections, so that his work could get going and the church could do what he was crucified for us to be able to do. But notice it's all related to the work of God. You're not going to find one time in any of the book of Acts where God does something to give direction to somebody in their personal lives. Well, then how do these people that received visions and saw angels concerning the work of God, how were they led in their personal lives? Same way you and I are. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. See, folks, there's a fine line here because you don't want to discount anything that God does. You don't want to discount angels. You don't want to discount visions. You don't want to discount prophecies. But you've got to realize that God gives us an example of these things in use in a specific manner for a specific purpose, and that is for the work of God. Not to tell you or me whether we ought to move to another town or whether we ought to change jobs or anything like that. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, we've talked about a little bit. It's Cornelius' household. Cornelius has a vision. He sees an angel that tells him to go get Peter. Beginning in verse 9, it says, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up onto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He sees the vision of the big sheep with all the, the animals, both clean and unclean. Here's the voice of the Lord that says, Rise, Peter, slay and eat. And he argues with it. He said, Not so, Lord. I'll never eat anything unclean and never have, never will. And Jesus answers him back and says, Don't call common that which I've cleansed, or don't call unclean. In other words, that which I've cleansed. This thing happens three times. It tells us that Peter doesn't know what it means. But so many times, it seems to me, you judge this for yourself, but of the people that talk to me about stuff, wanting to know direction from God and looking for revelation, people seem to have the idea that whenever you have a vision, you know immediately what's going on. You'll know everything start to finish. Everything becomes clear. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people are looking for spectacular guidance because that way they don't have to find out what God's plan is. That way they'll just know instantly it'll all be laid out clear and clear as a bell. But it wasn't for Peter. Notice in verse 17, now when Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean. Well, that means he doesn't know, doesn't it? He's doubting in himself. He's trying to figure this out. Now, it's a vision that he has three times. It's got to be important because he has it three times. And after the third time, he has no clue what he's talking about or what he's referring to. While he doubted on the vision, 
Behold, three, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, notice this, the Spirit said, here's the voice of the Holy Ghost within him. The Spirit said, now he gives him direction. Notice the vision didn't give him a lift of direction. Not an ounce. Not a smidgen. The Holy Ghost does, though. While he thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. You know the end of the story, how he goes to Cornelius' house the next day, begins to preach Jesus to him. The Holy Ghost falls on all of them. They are saved and filled with the Spirit of God. They begin to speak with other tongues. And Peter then says, Now I understand what the vision means. It means that the blood of Jesus has cleansed all mankind. It's available for Jews and Gentiles. First time that the Gentile world had ever really heard the gospel in any form or fashion. Chapter 11. Verse 27. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth or famine, drought, which results in famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let me ask you a question. The prophet Agabus comes down signifies, indicates, um, it could mean that he acted it out. It doesn't say that he said. In fact, the Bible, the Holy Spirit deliberately chose not to use the word said. So I'm not sure exactly what he did, but he made it known unto them that there was a drought that was coming that would result in a famine. Is there any direction in that? There's revelation. Revelation about what is to come. But is there any direction in that? There's not. Oh, if we could just get to a prophet, then he could tell us what to do. Real bona fide prophets don't tell you what to do. A lot of people putting themselves off as prophets wanting to tell you what to do. But you can't find any place in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Old Testament is different because people didn't have the Holy Ghost. You can't find any example in the New Testament where prophets giving people direction. Prophet delivers the word of the Lord. Now, does the word of the Lord that the prophet delivers or would deliver to you or me or anyone, would that ever supersede the inward witness that we have by the Holy Ghost? Well, obviously it does not, or else prophets would be giving people direction. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. But if you're having trouble hearing from the Holy Ghost, just go find you a prophet. That's not in there. There's no direction whatsoever. But what direction, what prompts these people to take action to send relief? The love of God on the inside of them. Paul said the love of Christ constraineth us. When they hear the difficulty that's coming, they determine to send relief. 
because they care about their Christian family. So the only direction that comes is the love of God acted on when they hear the revealed future events that are to come. Can you see that? Now, wouldn't the prophet be in a perfect position to tell him what to do if that was his job? That's not his job. Look at chapter 12. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. These were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him. Keeping, uh, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And the keepers before the Lord kept the prison. I'm sorry, the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter. That means kicked him, hit him. Smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. Good thing God sent a lockpicking angel. And the angel said unto him, Gird yourself and bind on your sandals. Put your clothes on, Peter. And so he did. And then he said unto him, Cast your garment about you. Don't forget your coat and follow me. There's no sense of urgency about this at all. The light shines around Peter and it doesn't wake him up. The angel has to hit him in some way to awaken him, lifts him up, tells him to put on his shoes and his clothes, reminds him not to forget his coat and says, follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not, did not know, in other words, that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. He's not even sure if this is really happening. And when they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leads out into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him, disappeared. Now, is there any direction here other than put on your clothes and don't forget your coat? None whatsoever. Peter comes to himself in the middle of the city street and says, wow, that really happened. I'm, I'm free. I'm out here. So he goes to where people are gathered. You remember the story. He knocks on the door and a little girl comes to the door and he identifies himself. She doesn't believe it's him. So she goes running away and telling everybody, it's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. Doesn't even open the door to let him in. Here's an angel in operation. An angel is sent to deliver Peter. No direction whatsoever. But delivers him from the hand of Herod so that he can do the work of God. Look at chapter 13. Verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that it was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, 
Now, there's prophets and teachers there, so he must be speaking through the prophets. But notice how, what he says and how he says it. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Notice he does not say, For the work whereunto I am calling them. In other words, the Holy Ghost is saying, I've talked to them about this before. It's time to separate them for the work that I've already talked to them about. Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Now, one of the prophets, and I'm sure the others, however many there are, there's five men that are prophets and or teachers. So we don't know how many of each there are or how many stand in both offices, prophet and teacher. But these are men that know the, the, the Holy Ghost. And I'm certain that once it's spoken through one of them, the others agree that this is what the Holy Ghost is saying. They're in unity about what's going on. But the Holy Ghost speaks to the prophet not to give direction, but to confirm the direction that's already been given. The prophet just says it's time. He doesn't say, here's what I've got for Paul and Barnabas to do. He just says, now it's time to separate them for the work where do I have called them. That means they've already been called. Not am calling them. It's not God giving direction. It's God saying it's time to move forward. Can you see that? See, this is how real Bible prophets are supposed to operate. So much goofiness going on in the modern day church. Where it seems to me, I'm not trying to judge anybody's heart, but it's hard not to make determinations about things when you see it seems to me people are in competition to be the most used of God rather than really stand in the place that God has for us to be. But this is the way prophets are really supposed to operate. All right, let's look at the next one over in chapter 16. Here's Paul and Silas on their second missionary journey. Verse 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and into the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. How were they forbidden? It's got to be the inward witness. It's just got to be an inward knowing. A check on the inside. Don't go that way. If it was something more than that and the Holy Ghost didn't tell us, then he did us a disservice. And then they were come to Mysia and they essayed. That means they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. How? Same way he leads all of us. When we're going the wrong way, he makes that check on the inside of us. There's, a, there's an inward knowing. There's an inward witness that we're doing the wrong thing or going the wrong way. There's a stoplight on the inside. You may not be able to identify just exactly what it is. You'll just know it is. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And in the vision there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him or encouraged him, begged him, saying, come over unto Macedonia and help us. Now notice verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering. Notice that phrase, assuredly gathering. Not knowing that the Lord had told us. 
but assuredly gathering. It was left up to them to interpret the vision and what it should mean for them. How did they interpret it? By that same inward witness they've been following not to go into Asia and not to go into Bithynia. After we'd seen the vision, we decided to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. Wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier for God to just say in the vision? Or, or, well, wouldn't it have been even easier for him to have a different kind of vision? Why see a man of Macedonia? Why not Jesus appear and say, I want you to go to Macedonia? Would it have been any chance for anybody to miss, miss it or mess up then, would it? See, that's the way we want it to be. Oh, Lord, tell me what to do. Oh, Lord, tell me what to do. He'll give us an inward witness and we'll say, oh, Lord, tell us what to do. We'll have that inward witness and we'll say, yeah, but Lord, I want to know for sure. And what we're saying is we want something spectacular. We want a vision or we want an angel. Lord, just write it up in the sky so we'll know. In other words, Give us something, anything, so that we don't have to follow our spirits. Attach something to our feelings or give us some kind of mental understanding. Then we'll know. But the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. Not our minds, not our bodies. They decided to go into Macedonia assuredly gathering. They interpreted the vision to mean... God has for us to go into Macedonia. Again, this is not personal direction. It's concerning the work of God. Chapter 23. This is after Paul winds up in Jerusalem. He's taken captive by the Jews. You remember the story about how every city that he went to, the Holy Ghost was witness to him that bonds and afflictions are awaiting him in Jerusalem. But he doesn't let any of that turn him away from going. Verse 11. In the night following the Lord stood by him and said be of good cheer Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem so must also thou bear witness at Rome. Now a lot of people would preach that uh, uh, Paul missed it. That the Holy Ghost was trying to warn him not to go to Jerusalem. But if Paul missed it, wouldn't this have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, Paul, what in the world are you doing here? I warned you in every city not to come. That's not what he said. Now notice even what Jesus said. He said, be of good cheer, Paul. It's a good thing to keep in mind when you're in prison. Be of good cheer. For just as you've testified of me in in Jerusalem, you've got to testify of me in Rome also. You remember in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21? It said after all these things, talking about all the things that happened in Ephesus and the great three and a half year revival that they had. It said after these things, Paul purposed in the spirit, saying after I've been to Jerusalem, I must go to Rome. Jesus doesn't even tell him anything new. He already had that in his heart. Jesus doesn't even supersede the inward witness in this case. How important must the inward witness be? Now, we skipped one uh, uh, occurrence on the road to Jerusalem, and that's in Acts chapter 21, I believe it is, 
where Agabus comes down. They're at Philip the Evangelist's house. Paul and his company are at Philip the Evangelist's house. Philip and his daughters are there. Agabus comes down and binds his hands, takes Paul's girdle and binds his hands and says, so shall they do in Jerusalem to the man that owns this girdle. Then everybody there, Luke says this way, we and they of that place. That means Philip and his daughters and Luke and the rest of Paul's company besought Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But remember, Paul talked them out of it. He said, what mean you to weep and break my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. Luke winds up saying, and when he would not be persuaded, we relented. We ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Now, the only one in the whole group that's not specifically identified as telling Paul not to go is Agabus, the prophet. The one that comes down and says, here's what's going to happen. He doesn't give any direction. He doesn't attach any interpretation to it whatsoever. He just simply says, here's what's going to happen. Folks, that's how prophets, that's how Bible prophets were. Here's what's going to happen. Now, Jesus appears to Paul once he gets to Jerusalem. He says, be of good cheer, Paul. Just like you've testified of me here, so must you also testify of me of Rome. Job's not done yet. To confirm what he already had in his heart. Finally, look with me over to chapter 27. This is on the voyage. Remember, Paul said, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt and much damage, not only of the lading in the ship, but also of our lives. But the sailors thought they knew better. So they got themselves in the middle of a big storm. Halfway through the storm, Paul says in verse 21, But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not loose from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall not be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. For there stood by me, how do you know, Paul? For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and, lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. The angel appears for what purpose? Well, apparently it's to strengthen him because he doesn't give him any more direction than he already had. He already knew that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Jesus confirmed that in Jerusalem. Just like you've testified of me here in Jerusalem, now you've got to testify of me in Rome. The angel strengthens him. I don't think adding Caesar to the mix changes anything that Paul already understood. Where would he testify of Jesus if not before Caesar if he's going to Rome? He's already appealed to Caesar, so he knows he's on the way. So the angel appears to strengthen him according to what he already knew in his heart. Now, he brings him revelation. The revelation is the ship will be lost, but the people will be saved. I'll spare all the people that are with you. 
I'm sure that's for Paul's sake. So there is revelation, but there's no direction whatsoever. Now, folks, there are, these are ten events. We went through them real quickly. Each one of them we could spend a whole evening on, I guess. But these ten events, and not a one of them, changes or supersedes the inward witness. Not a one. Not one prophecy. Not one vision. Not one appearance of an angel. Not even Jesus himself appearing to somebody. And every one of these events had to do with the work of God Not a one of them had to do with personal events in our lives. Shouldn't we go as much by what the Holy Ghost doesn't tell us as what he does? Now, far be it from me to say that God couldn't or would never give you a vision about something in your personal life or have an an angel appear to you about something in your personal life. Or some other spectacular event. But we don't have any scriptural evidence for it. So even if it was to happen. It would, we would have to assume that it would be a rare occurrence. Or a rare occasion. Rather than the norm. I know of the few things. That I've had spectacular events. A vision or an appearance of an angel. I know every time that I've had something like that. It's always been related to the work of God. Fits right in line with what the Bible tells us in the book of Acts. Every one of them. Every manifestation of the Spirit of God I've ever had has been related to the work of God rather than my personal life. God expects us to develop a sensitivity to him, to his spirit, in our spirits. And to know his leading in our personal lives by the inward witness. You just can't overemphasize that. You just can't do it. The development of the human spirit is the most important thing in the life of the believer. But it's the most neglected aspect of our Christian lives. When I say ours, I don't mean yours and mine necessarily. Hopefully that's not the case for you and me. But you'd have to say that for the church world at large. But you just can't overemphasize it. You just can't overemphasize the importance of developing spiritually. Of developing a sensitivity. Developing an understanding of the inward witness. And how the Holy Ghost bears witness with your heart. You just cannot overemphasize that. person who locks their spirits away becomes easy prey for self, selfish and designing people. But the person who gives themselves to spiritual development, to the leading of God in the inward witness, becomes a victor in everything that they do. They become a champion in life, in every aspect. Because God will lead you by the Holy Ghost, in even the smallest details of life. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the inward witness, for the presence of the Holy Ghost within us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to develop our spirits according to the word of God, to learn to be led by the Holy Ghost. Lord, we thank you that as we learn to develop in spirit, to learn to Walk by that inward witness. 
We thank you, Lord, that the Holy Ghost will always lead us into victory. He's our guide. He's our teacher. He guides us into all truth and all reality. Thank you, Lord, for guiding us by the Holy Ghost through our spirits. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week.